have you guys had your coffee yet? Let me guess. Nathaniel, do you not drink coffee? Bingo, Galen. I'm sure we've Wait. talked about this. Ew. You drink tea? <laughs> That's how I feel about coffee. No, I don't I don't drink any caffeine. Sarah, you drink coffee. Yeah. No, I, I drink coffee, but I, I'm afraid this level of enthusiasm is what you get this morning. Regardless of the coffee. Well, why don't you chug your coffee before we hit record? Woo! I mean, that was really that was really a lot of enthusiasm there. That was truly like the enthusiasm version of graphic design is my passion. Hello and welcome to this early morning primary reaction edition of the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. We've got a lot to talk about this morning. Republican Myra Flores won the special election in Texas's 34th congressional district outright, avoiding a runoff and flipping the longtime Democratic seat in Texas's Rio Grande Valley. Flores overperformed the partisanship of the 80% Hispanic district by 10 points. In Nevada, the picture of which Republicans will face off against incumbent Democrats in the highly competitive state this fall has come into focus. Four statewide Republican nominees have at least dabbled in big lie conspiracy theories, including the nominee for Secretary of State Jim Marchant, who said he would not have certified the 2020 election. And in South Carolina, Trump's endorsees against Republican incumbent representatives delivered a split decision. Tom Rice, one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump, was defeated by Russell Fry, while Nancy Mace, who has been critical of Trump, defeated her challenger, Katie Arrington. So let's dig into all of these results. And here with me to do that is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hello. Good morning. How are you? How much did you sleep last night? Good morning, y'all. No, I, I think I got like six hours. I can't complain. Oh, that means you just woke up because I can tell from Slack that you were awake at 2 a.m. <laughs> That's true. I did just wake up. I slept in this morning. I'm glad I could. Okay. All right. Glad to hear. Also with us is elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hello. Good morning. How much did you sleep last night? Yeah, the secret is to like wake up right before you start work. This is how I always stay up late. Like, you know, go to bed at two, but then wake up at like nine, basically. Okay. So you're also well rested then. I mean, no, I wouldn't say I'm well rested. I normally get more, but um but no, I got I got like six hours too. Okay, how much sleep do you normally get? I would say normally I get eight hours. You're so responsible. You get eight hours of sleep, you don't drink coffee. It's true. I mean, I don't know if we can be friends. But I also cover politics, so. What does that mean? It's a very dangerous profession. It's a very <laughs> Hazardous to your health, let's say. I agree with that. This is true. <laughs> this is true. This is why I'm lobbying for the podcast to take off the month of July when we don't have any primaries, but that's not going to happen. Oh, so Maryland. What is Maryland? Chop liver? That's true. That'll be the most exciting primary in July. Yeah. Sorry. I should say there are primaries in July, but we're not live blogging any of them, which was not a decision I made. So it's actually Sarah who thinks that Maryland doesn't matter. Whoa, 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 whoa. I should say I wussed out and went to bed before the results came in in Nevada. As closely attentive listeners may have noticed last night, Nevada has a law preventing uh, results from being revealed while people are still waiting in line to vote. So what time did the results come in in Nevada last night? It was around 1 a.m. Eastern, I think. Yeah. But then the good news was that they like 
all came in at once. Like we have like, you know, half the state was immediately reporting, which was pretty great. So a lot of races were called. Let's talk about them. But first, we're going to talk about Texas's 34th congressional district, the special election there, which I think might be one of the the leading narratives of last night. Of course, as I mentioned, Republicans flipped that district their first in 2022, but very likely not their last. What should we be taking away from that race other than the top line Republicans are overperforming in congressional districts? Well, I think there's a couple of things. So actually, when you look at special elections this year, the signs have been pretty muddy. There have been instances like the 34th where Republicans have overperformed and won, but there've also been instances where Democrats have overperformed, you know, based on the margin and what we would expect. And so we haven't gotten kind of a clear picture like we did in 2018 from special elections that clearly pointed to say a blue wave environment. I think what's also really tricky about the 34th is thanks to redistricting, this district is going to become a whole lot bluer come November. And we already know who the Democratic nominee is going to be in that race. And it's a real question then if whether Flores is going to be able to hold on to it. I think she will have, you know, a slight incumbent advantage going into that race. I think there are questions about why Democrats didn't invest more in a district that they have historically won and kind of seem to give up on it. But one interesting point. So this was something Jeffrey Skelly looked at last night on the live blog. We were kind of talking internally, you know, OK, this district is going to be D17 in November. Right now it's D plus five. So that's a lot more democratic, right? It's going to be challenging for Republicans, even in a Republican-leaning environment. So Jeffrey looked at how many districts in 2018 did Republicans lose that were the equivalent, so like R plus 17. And what he found is that Democrats only won two seats that fell into that category. And overall, what happened is Republicans won 22 of 24 seats in 2018 that ranged between R plus 17 and R plus 20. So that's a really important piece of information to keep in mind, because while Republicans won last night, it really seems like it'll be a tough order for them to hold on to this and the fall. And it's hard then to kind of extrapolate from this what else you could possibly see in South Texas moving into 2022 in the fall. Yeah, I mean, I do think that it showed that South Texas is still a problem for Democrats. You know, after the 2020 election, when the bottom really dropped out for them there, there were a lot of theories floated, like that they uh, weren't able to canvas because of the pandemic or that Latinos really like incumbent presidents. And that's why they gravitated toward Trump. And it was just going to be a one off and they would come back to Biden. And I, I don't see how you can continue. Or even the stimulus payments. I also heard that. But yeah, I, I don't see how you can continue to kind of deny the the realignment of Latinos along the, the Rio Grande after these results. You know, the district has a partisan lean of D plus five. The combined results of all the Republicans and Democrats on the ballot, Republicans won by five points. So it was a 10 point shift toward Republicans. And that's consistent with a Republican leaning uh, environment, as as Sarah said. But clearly, you know, if if this were truly still a, a blue, deeper blue area, it would have been a lot harder, I guess, to see that kind of overperformance. So I think, you know, this bodes well for Republicans in the region. It bodes well for Republicans overall in 2022. Although, as Sarah said, you know, you do need to look at the average, but on average, Republicans have overperformed by, by two points, which isn't 10 points, obviously, but it's still, you know, decent. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it was uh, a good night for Republicans. 
So this leads me to the following question, which is, as we've said, the partisanship of the new 34th congressional district after redistricting leans Democratic by 17 points. However, in order to arrive at that number, we've used elections dating back to 2016. And given that the landscape in the Rio Grande Valley has changed so dramatically in Republicans' favor in recent years, should we think of there being an asterisk next to that sort of plus 17D number and that it might actually be competitive this fall? Yeah, I think that there, you know, there is kind of wiggle room there. As you mentioned, Galen, our partisan lean contains it's uh, half based on the results of the most recent presidential election. So in this case, 2020, one quarter based on the second most recent, which in this case is 2016, and then one quarter based on state legislative results. And so we do that because we found empirically that the best predictor of future partisanship is this kind of mixture of mostly new, the newest results, but also taking into account some of those older results because sometimes, um, you know, districts and and areas do um, revert back to the mean. But I think that in the event of, you know, a kind of a very hasty realignment like we're seeing in the Rio Grande Valley, it is definitely possible that uh, the partisan lean could be off. That said, it's probably not, I wouldn't say it's two off. So even in 2020, Biden won the seat by the new lines. He would have won it um, by 15 points. Mm -hmm. So it's still a a pretty blue area, but it's not D plus 17. That would be basically equivalent to D plus 10 because you have to remember to subtract out the the four or five points that Biden won nationally by. But that would still require obviously a, a, a big Republican overperformance in order to win. I wouldn't be shocked if this district is like competitive, gets frisky in, in the fall, but I would still expect the, the Democrat to win by, I don't know, maybe maybe around 10 points. All right, let's move on and talk about last night's primary results. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. On the topic of indicators that uh, may bode well for Republicans this fall, let's look at Nevada. Of course, Biden only won there in 2020 by about two points. And given, you know, trends over the past few years, it looks like Nevada is actually becoming more Republican instead of more Democratic. And we can talk a little bit about why. But first and foremost, let's talk about the winners in last night's primaries in Nevada. As I mentioned at the top, big lie conspiracy theorists did pretty well in the state. Nathaniel, can you give us an overview of who those people are and what their beliefs look like? Yeah, so the Senate nominee for Republicans is going to be Adam Laxalt. He's a former state attorney general, and he was also a co-chair of Trump's 2020 campaign in Nevada. And he filed a lawsuit almost immediately after the 2020 election that alleged that there were irregularities in the results. So he has kind of, you know, not only 
paid lip service to to the idea that uh, voter fraud cost Trump the election, but also acted upon it. In the Secretary of State's race, as you mentioned at the top, Galen, probably the the biggest believer in the big lie in that field, and there were a couple, but the winner was the, the biggest, and that's uh, Jim Marchant. He has said that he would not have voted to certify the 2020 election. He says that he wants to decertify electronic voting machines in the state and early voting, things like that. It's questionable whether he would have the legal authority to do that, since, you know, obviously things like early voting and absentee voting are set by state law, by the legislature, which at least right now is still democratic. But it's clear that he does not particularly care what the true results in the state are, um, which is, of course, concerning for democracy. Then in the gubernatorial race, the Republican nominee is going to be Clark County Sheriff uh, Joe Lombardo. He has kind of flirted with the idea of the big lie, hasn't quite fully embraced it, but kind of you know hinted at the idea that there was fraud. Same with the Republican nominee for Attorney General Siegel Chata. Laxall is who's going to be facing off against Democratic incumbent Catherine Cortez Masto. You mentioned that he's a big lie believer, but in general, is he seen as too partisan for a state like Nevada or a sort of serious challenger to an endangered Democratic incumbent? Both, I guess. Um, (laughs) I mean, yeah, fair. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's 2022. This is a Republican-leaning year. As you mentioned, Nevada is is not a safe bet for Democrats anymore. If it ever was, it wasn't. But... uh, you know, Laxalt is is pretty diehard conservative. He is a club for growth Republican. That's the anti-government spending group that's kind of closely aligned with the Tea Party. He won in 2014, which was a terrible year for Democrats in Nevada. It, it really typified their struggles that year. They basically had no gubernatorial nominee. The bottom totally fell out on their turnout, and Laxalt was able to become attorney general. But then in 2018, when he ran for governor, he lost. But of course, that was a, a blue year. So I'm not sure that we really know how Laxalt will do in like a neutral year and whether he's a, a weaker or stronger than average candidate. But of course, again, 2022 probably isn't going to be a neutral year. So it may not matter. He also, you know, he's the grandson of a former Nevada governor and Senator Paul Laxalt. So like he does have establishment roots in the state as well. But as Nathaniel was getting at, he really did not run a pro-establishment Republican campaign. If anything, too, Sam Brown, who was running against him in the race, was kind of trying to be more of the outsider in that and maybe was a bit Trumpier than Laxalt. But that in and of itself wasn't necessarily very straightforward either, as they both really did lean into support for Trump, the idea that the 2020 election was fraudulent. So it's kind of hard to see how Laxalt will kind of appeal to maybe more moderate Republicans in the state. But Nevada is also a really weird state when it comes to its demographics. Um, There's a lot of non-college education educated voters in the state who are white. If Latino voters continue to back Republicans, that might be the base that Laxalt needs. Yeah, it seems like Nevada has a demographic makeup that should make Democrats worried and increasingly so. I mean, we've been talking about historical elections in the state in 2010, which everyone remembers was a horrible year for Democrats. Senator Harry Reid still won his race pretty easily. We're not talking like that about Catherine Cortez Masto in what will again be a likely Republican-leaning environment. And that may have to do with the fact, like you said, Sarah, that there's a lot of non-college educated white voters in the state. 
and there's a lot of Hispanic voters. I think it's 17% Hispanic. And like the country in general, non-college educated white voters significantly outnumber college educated white voters, even though, you know, Clark County is very suburban, urban, and it's concentrated in that area. It's not like a, a tech hub like Austin or something like that, where you have all of these white collar workers. Looking at it at this point, would you give Republicans the advantage in the state statewide this fall? So Galen, happily, we're going to have our forecast here in a few weeks, so I won't have to speculate quite as much. But right now, we know, according to Inside Elections and Cook Political Report, that this race is rated as a toss-up, which seems to be a fair read, given what you were flagging about the demographics of Nevada and the Republican-leaning environment. All right. Well, I won't try to extract any more speculation out of you two. You're too good at your jobs, you data journalists, you. But let's wrap on when it comes to Nevada on those congressional districts that we are expecting to be very competitive and like maybe more you would put them in the lean R column, given quite how even their partisanship is in what's expected to be a Republican leaning environment. Who are the Republican nominees who are facing off against Democratic incumbents in, in those three congressional districts? So only one of those races has been called. That's the third district for attorney April Becker, who uh, was kind of down the line, backed by pretty much every establishment group that you can imagine. She won her primary easily. The leader in the first district Republican primary is a guy named Mark Robertson. He is an army veteran. He's kind of more of a Tea Party Republican. Um, and he's going up against Congresswoman uh, Dina Titus, who won her primary very easily, more easily than I was expecting against a progressive challenger. So that looks kind of like on paper, like a candidate matchup that might favor Democrats. But, you know, again, in a highly partisan environment, those things can sometimes come out in the wash. And then in the fourth district, you still have a close Republican primary between Sam Peters and Annie Black. Um, Black is an assemblywoman who actually attended the January 6th riot. So she would probably be Democrats preferred nominee. But right now, I think the primary is too close to call. Peters leads 48% to 41%. Right. I think what's so interesting about Nevada is they've kind of taken a risk in terms of redistricting and trying to spread the wealth of some Democratic voters. And now some of these districts are really highly competitive and could be really challenging for Democrats to hold on to here in 2022. You know, one of the reasons that reformers argue for drawing competitive districts on purpose, and that was not the case in Nevada. It's not like there was an independent redistricting commission that wanted these districts to be competitive. But the argument is that it leads to more moderate representation in Congress. Looking at the Democrats and Republicans running in these three highly competitive districts, can we come to that conclusion? Does it seem like people have embraced the competitive nature of the districts and are running moderate campaigns? I think that, you know, the idea that competition, you know, gerrymandering reform will cure what ails us in terms of polarization is, is clearly overhyped. You know, a lot of the problem is with the voters themselves, voters, especially in primaries who look in the mirror, America, ring choice voting, America, guys, <laughs> even ring choice voting isn't isn't going to fully solve this problem. Helps, like, the, the issue is that the, the people who go and vote, especially in primaries, who are really the, the party diehards, you know, these are people who want a, you know, right-wing vision for the Republican Party, a left-wing vision for the Democratic Party. And that isn't going to change regardless, you know, the Republican primary in a competitive district is still diehard Republicans. So I think, you know, you see somebody like Annie Black, you know, doing pretty well in her primary, 
clearly we've seen in other races like Pennsylvania governor, for example, Republicans are not afraid of nominating pretty far right candidates, even in swingy races. That said, I will venture a guess that like in the case of like April Becker in the third district, the Republican establishment probably doesn't come in so forcefully in favor of, you know, this attorney who they clearly think is a capable candidate and can win in November if the district is, you know, R plus 30 or something like that, and they don't have to worry about it. So, you know, it might inspire, you know, external forces to lean a little bit on the more electable candidate, which, you know, could help with the margins. And certainly you do see, you know, in both parties tends to be that these swing districts are the ones that have the more moderate members and that's not a coincidence but overall I, I you know I would tell people not to necessarily embrace the idea that in swing districts it, it, it's always going to be the more electable candidate or you know voters are think, really thinking that strategically I think that's fair I would flag though that you know the political science literature on primaries and the role they play in increased polarization is mixed and muddy there's evidence that you know before we had open primaries polarization was a lot higher there's evidence that primaries may not be exacerbating polarization it could just be a large part of you know the way we increasingly geographically sort ourselves versus the mechanisms of primaries. It's complicated. To put a final point on Nevada, these statewide races this fall, particularly for governor, attorney general, secretary of state, does it seem like if the Republicans running were to win, they would not certify a Democratic win in 2024? Not saying that Democrats will win Nevada in 2024, but if they were to win in 2024, is that sort of the position that they seem to be taking? It certainly seems to be Marchant's position. And yeah, I think that is a, a real danger. Yeah, no, it's hard. The New York Times had a piece out today that was talking about Marchant, um, talking about Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. It's just increasingly, and this is a storyline that I think has been covered post-Trump's refusal to essentially concede in the 2020 election, that increasingly you're seeing a Republican strategy of not just sowing mistrust and disinformation around our elections, but increasingly trying to install people in power who don't believe that the election was fair and then, you know, have said publicly that they will, you know, somehow overturn the results or be more aggressive about results moving into 2024. And you're seeing that in states like Nevada, Pennsylvania. I believe Governor DeSantis in Florida just appointed someone as secretary of state or attorney general who, um, you know, falls into this camp as well. And you're kind of seeing what's been described as the layup and organization of these roles in the lead up to 2024. Well, speaking of former President Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election, let's talk about South Carolina, where one of the incumbent Republicans voted to impeach uh, former President Trump after January 6th. That was Tom Rice. He lost his primary election last night. And of course, the other candidate running with a Trump-endorsed challenger was Nancy Mace. She won. She avoided a runoff. She got a majority. So that was sort of a, a success for some Trump skeptics within the party. Although, as we all know, these are not clear-cut lines. There are plenty of ways in which she, she sort of supports Trump policies, which I think is like sort of common and not bad for democracy. Like if you support the general policies, but want 
the person who is selling those policies to also follow democratic norms, great, whatever. That's how politics works. So let's begin with Tom Rice. We were skeptical about his chances of winning when we talked about this on Monday. What happened? Uh, he got blown out. State Representative Russell Fry, who was Trump's endorsed candidate, got 51% of the vote, which was, I think, on the upper end of what folks were expecting. It allowed him to win without a runoff. And Rice got only 25% of the vote, uh, which is actually one of the lowest shares uh, that I can recall of that an incumbent uh, has ever gotten in a primary recently. So, you know, I think that I mean, this is the first time we've seen a, a pro-impeachment Republican in a in a primary, right? You know, we've had four of them who have retired and decided not to seek re-election. The other primaries, or actually, that's not true. We saw David Valadejo in California. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for catching me, Sarah. But he didn't have a Trump-endorsed challenge. That's true. And it was a top two primary, so it was kind of weird. Like, he also ended up, I think he's currently at, like, around 25% of the vote, but because that's 25% of all votes, including Democratic votes. So if you were to just, just look at Republican votes, that would probably be, like, 50% of the Republican votes. So, but basically, it, it shows that, you know, this was the worst sin that you could commit if you are a true believer Trump Republican and voters kind of doled out the maximum punishment as well. Yeah. You know, this has definitely been, I think, the big storyline that a lot of national outlets have run with this morning. I think that's in part because people gave up on Nevada. But, you know, one thing we were talking about on the live blog. Not us. Not us. <laughs> not us, though. Not us. It's true. But one thing we were talking about on the live blog, this was a point that Galen actually had brought up, was that these districts were also really different. Like Mesa's was a lot more affluent than Rice's. Rice, you know, it's hardcore conservative. But as we've talked about, you know, on this podcast, on the website, what it means to be conservative is dramatically changing in this country and it increasingly is associated with being Trumpy. And he was not Trumpy. And so I think a lot is kind of being made about, you know, oh, one of Trump's endorsements, you know, failed. This other one went through. It's a mixed sign for the party. It's not a mixed sign. Look at Nevada. It's very clear that Trumpy Republicans are doing well this season. But yes, impeachment might be a bridge too far. So to yeah, add some detail to that, there's a lot of context that helps you understand why Mace won her race and why Rice didn't win his race. I think first and foremost, their approaches were different. Mace didn't vote for impeachment. She was highly critical of Trump, but ultimately didn't vote for impeachment. Rice did. In the time since, Rice has doubled down on his position. In the time since, Mace has changed the subject and talked a lot about other issues. I said this on the podcast on Monday. She's on Fox all the time talking about policy priorities and things like that and kind of taking the position of Brian Kemp that like, all right, let's talk about something different. I don't have a problem with the policies, so let's talk about those. The districts, of course, are also very different. The 7th District, which Rice was representing, is an extremely rural district. When it comes to median household income, it's $20,000 below the national average. This is Trump country, essentially. When it comes to Mesa's district, the 1st District, it's low country. It's kind of the fancy parts of coastal South Carolina, like Hilton Head Island and the areas near Charleston, the median household income is $10,000 greater than the national average. So they both ran very different campaigns and they were speaking to pretty different voters. It's not like, it's a luck of the draw. Sometimes Trump's endorsements win and sometimes they don't. It's a lot of other things that matter too. And this is a great sort of example of the different factors that go into 
how people perform in elections. Exactly. I think there's this Pew Research Center poll that's been cited a lot about how 71% of Republicans said that the GOP, you know, should accept elected Republicans who disagree with the party on some issues. And everyone's like, wow, 71%, that's a lot. Like, why are some of these Republicans who are super critical of Trump not doing better? But also in that survey, you know, only 43% of those Republicans said that the same is true of Republicans who openly criticize Trump. In other words, you know, there is kind of a limit to the criticism that I think you can make as an elected official running for office. And I think the points you make about the districts being just so wholly different um, is a really undercovered point of this too, Galen. Nonetheless, we now have more data about how the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach former President Trump are faring. Of those 10 Republicans, how many are going to be in office next session? Yeah, that's a million dollar question. I'm going to say three, I think, um, Valadejo, and then the two from Washington, Newhouse and her butler, right? I think they see Newhouse and her butler. (laughs) Both she and her butler voted to impeach Trump as Republicans and are running for re-election. Herrera Butler. It's a congresswoman. They're the ones I have heard the least kind of chatter around. Liz Cheney is the the fourth one. And of course, she is being heavily targeted. She looks like she is way down in the polls. I just don't see her winning at this stage. But, you know, Washington and California um, have those, the top two primaries, which could insulate them to some degree. The Trump endorsed challengers in those two Washington districts are not strong there. They have been struggle city. And as we mentioned, Valadejo didn't have a Trump endorsed challenger. And it looks like he's probably going to advance to the general election, which he isn't guaranteed of winning either. Um, but I think probably in 2022, he will. But yeah, but I would say three at most. And it, it could be zero if Trump's um, endorsed candidates pick up the pace in Washington and Valadejo loses in November. What about Peter Meyer? Oh, no? hmm. did I miss someone? Where's my math going wrong? So he represents a kind of more split in terms of partisanship district in Michigan that's like a little more affluent. He pitches himself as this independent, former military, you know, wealthy family in Michigan. But I think he has a Trump back challenger. And so that all of that may not necessarily help him win in the end. Yeah, no, there was a article out from Politico today that says, next on Trump's primary warpath, Michigan, and it's all about Meyer and Trump's vendetta against him. Remember, he was a first-term Republican who voted to impeach Trump. And in the petty primary that has become 2022, Trump is certainly going to go heavy on Michigan next. It's also worth noting that redistricting put Meyer in a significantly bluer district, so he would also be in danger of losing the general election if he advances. All right. Well, is that a wrap for Tuesday's primaries? What else do we have to talk about? I think that's good. I think that's good, yeah. Should I let you guys get back to sleep? Yes. No? Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I should say we never got to it because we've had so much news to cover this week, but we have a new 538 Ipsos poll on issue priorities leading up to the 2022 election. I was thinking maybe we would talk about it today, but I'm not going to put you all on the spot and make you talk about that after a late night. Maybe we'll talk about it on Monday. We also have a pretty interesting piece coming out about 
you know, new voting restrictions that have been enacted into law since the 2020 election. So there's plenty we didn't get to this week, but there's always another podcast. So let's leave it there for now. Thank you, Sarah and Nathaniel. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director, and our intern Emily Vineski is on audio editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.